I went into the Olympics with the goal of finishing in the top eight. I'm sitting in the room before the race with the seven other guys on the planet who are going to compete with me to be the best. That was when I had this feeling of like, I want to be the best. This is for the others out there. The other ambitious people who want to play at a higher level in their life. It's time to get curious and get real. Join me and together, let's find the others. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Find the Others podcast. I am your host, Joshua Church. Grateful to have you with us. New episodes are dropping every Wednesday and Sunday, so be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get the notification when a new episode comes out. And give me a follow on Instagram at Joshua Dean Church to catch different clips and highlights that I post. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, you find something that might be valuable, please be sure to share it with a friend who also might be into it so that together we can continue to grow our tribe of others. Today, I am excited to bring you a juicy one on tap with Steve Solomon. Steve is an Australian Olympic sprinter. He's a five-time defending Australian 400-meter champion. At the 2012 Summer Olympics in London at the age of 19, Steve competed in the finals of the men's 400-meter race, placing eighth overall out of the field of 48 of the world's best. He was the first Australian man in 24 years to reach the 400-meter Olympic final. Now he's gearing up for Tokyo for a chance to be the best in the world. In addition to his illustrious athletic career, Steve is passionate about high performance, solving difficult problems, and helping people grow. He is a professional at Uber also and is truly one of the most genuine and high-performing humans that I have the privilege of knowing. We had an awesome convo about his backstory and the crazy stroke of fate that led him to Stanford, what it was like racing in the finals of the Olympics, the effect that environment has on success, and how he balances both of his careers. Give him a follow on Instagram for some of the coolest content out there at Steve Solomon 10 and check out his Patreon account to join his exclusive newsletter to take a peek into his fascinating world. The link is in the show notes and I'm a member. It is the greatest newsletter I am a part of. Without further ado, please welcome Steve Solomon. Steve Solomon, welcome, brother. Thank you, Josh, mate. Fantastic to be here. How are you doing this morning? A little time travel going on here through the interwebs over in Australia, huh? That's it. I'm out here living in the future. I can tell you that you're in for a cracking of a day tomorrow. We've had uh, sunshine, blue skies, a couple of clouds, but uh, it's been a wonderful start to the morning, which you'll appreciate in what, about 16 hours time, I believe. There we go. That's awesome. So word from the future is that things are looking up. Things are looking bright. <laughs> it's always such a trip totally. to me that I, I was just talking with my dad about um, he's we're potentially planning a, a walk across America for my dad. He's gotten really big into walking. And so he loves he, he walks about 10 miles a day. So he's like mapping out if I walk 10 miles a day, you know, every day and I take two days off, you know, we can get across the country in 10 months or whatever it is. And and it's just a crazy thought to think like we can do that in five hours on a plane, but it would take nine months to walk. And it's not until somewhat relatively recently in human history that that was even a thing, right? It's just crazy to me that we're talking on the other side of the world and you're in a different day. 
Totally. Um, I was just reading in a deck last week that uh, ARK Investments put together. They're estimating that the willingness to pay for a two to three hour flight from New York to Tokyo is a hundred grand for a seat. And wow. like taking what you were just saying is, you know what, it was only early 1900s that we even had the thought of flight. And now right. we can go across the country in, in a couple of hours, or you can join your father in a nine month walk. <laughs> that's right that's right wow 100k for a seat yeah man i guess or uh, you could pay a hundred a hundred thousand dollars to fly from new york but well if you walk across the country and end up in new york if you want to go to tokyo <laughs> know that you can get there in a couple of hours there you go good to know that's awesome i love it uh steve well welcome onto the show my friend i'm excited to to dig in here and, and pick your brain about about all the things you know, I know when when we spent some time together out in Hawaii for uh, my sister and, and Chris's wedding, we had some great combos of just jamming on high performance, on just uh, the mindset, solving problems, all the different things, and really jammed. And I quickly discovered you were one of the others, as we have on the podcast, the Find the Others podcast. So um, been looking forward to this conversation for a while here, and just to to pick your brain a bit. So thanks thanks again for coming on. Mate, the pleasure is mine. I'm so excited for this chat. Can't wait to see where it takes us. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and jump off the diving board and see what uh, <laughs> see what rabbit holes we land into. So um, so talk to me. So you're right now training for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, I guess, right? <laughs> so what's that? What's that like? Talk to me about that process. Definitely. So I've been a professional athlete now for 10 years. This is my 10th year. Wow. Um, I represented Australia on a senior level for the first time in 2011 um, when I was still in high school. And now I'm yeah preparing for my second Olympics uh, in a couple of months time in Tokyo. It's obviously been a very different preparation cycle uh, for this Olympics, given that the Olympics were scheduled, the 2020 Olympics were scheduled for 2020 and the coronavirus came along and, and disrailed that and, and, I'm very grateful that Tokyo were able to to make the decision to postpone the Olympics rather than flat out cancel them, which right. would have been the easier option. It would have been the easier option to to cancel it, uh, but they made the decision to postpone it, which as an athlete, uh, I'm, I'm tremendously grateful for. But the last, you know, five years between Olympics has, has, has been quite interesting for me. I... I went to the Olympics in, in, in London in 2012, and that was my first Olympic Games, made the final there as a 19-year-old in the 400 metres, and narrowly missed out on the Rio Games and have been training you know, very intensely over the last four, four years ahead of Tokyo. And now that four years has turned to five years, and we're finally at that part of the cycle, Josh, where it feels real. Um, hmm. you know, anytime there's like a really long term goal that you're shooting towards, you know, a lot of the time, the majority of the time is spent preparing and, you know, you, 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 you don't see that end, end point. It's kind of like solving this massive puzzle, uh, where there are times where you kind of get a little bit of momentum. You start putting a few pieces together, but it's only towards the end of that puzzle. Do you start to see the entire thing taking shape? And that's where I am at the moment in that in that phase. I've I've got the foundations there. Over the next uh, two months, I'll I'll have my Olympic selection trials here in Australia, and you know, in, in I think it's about 170 days time. I hope to be uh, 
taking my uh, seat in the uh, on the plane to Tokyo and and then you know putting my country's uniform on and and competing to my best ability at the game. So that's where we are. So cool. I can only imagine because you were probably at this point at the final kind of ramp up last year when obviously the whole world went up into a frenzy. So what did that do to your mindset, to your training plan? Like I can imagine that has to just completely mess with you based on the way that you train, you know, ramping up towards a certain endeavor. So how did that, how did you have to adapt to that? What did you learn about adaptability through that? Totally. It's, it's definitely been a situation that was thrown in, you know, that I was thrown into rather than choose to step into, uh, but has been an amazing, amazing pond to learn from, you know, this, you, and you're totally right. It was almost this time last year that the coronavirus, you know, we started to know about it. We started to hear about it February, March last year. Um, the Olympics were canceled or postponed um, one week before my Olympic selection trials. So one week before I was scheduled to race for my spot in the Olympic games, the wow. Olympics were postponed. So as you can imagine, like with our periodization plan, so basically the way that we train and prepare for any event, you know, we always work backwards to make sure that the body's ready for that event. So for me, everything was working backwards from this Olympic selection trial so that I was in the best shape possible physically and mentally to attack those championships and give myself the best chance to qualify. So I had this enormous emotional, you know, I had so much emotion in my body, you know, so much expectation, you know, nerves, you know, I, I, I dropped weight, not by choice, but just because there was so much nerves in my body um, heading into these championships and then they were postponed. So it was quite a bizarre feeling at the time in the acute moment, everything just made sense, you know, everyone can cast their minds back to March, 2020 and the madness yeah. that was going on. And, you know, seeing Italy just going out of control was, the, you know, my first memories of seeing like the coronavirus and reading uh, text messages from doctors saying that there's not enough patients. There are not enough beds for the patients. Um, it was when Tom the, Hanks is when Tom Hanks got it that I was like, Oh, this is real. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, oh, for whatever yeah. reason, it was like, oh man, this is real. And the NBA, and, and they had to cancel the NBA. I was like, whoa. Yep. That's it. I mean, you everyone can remember that chaos, right? When we cast our minds back to it, like, you know, decisions were being made in the minutes. You know, every minute there was right. some new news coming out. Um, so at the time, like, it just made total sense. Like, yes, an Olympics cannot happen right now. It is 100% the right decision to postpone it and like that just made sense and i was okay with that and it's kind of like when you're in the in the zone and something tries to distract you you kind of note it and then you just stay in the zone though um and so that was kind of much of my training like we lost access to a lot of facilities you know my tr my tracks closed down my gyms closed down my swimming pool closed down but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super, I'm one of the lucky ones in the sense that my most important tool are my shoes. And thankfully they didn't take those away from me. You know, it was still, a lot, um, still able to get some great training in, um, out in the parks and on the streets and on the hills and on the stairs. So in terms of keeping fit and strong, like that wasn't too difficult through the coronavirus period. What I started to realize is as we got closer to when the games were meant to be, so June, July, 2020, I could still feel this like enormous buildup in my body of like expectation and nerves and like 
this is the event. This is the month. This is the time that my body was preparing for for a long time, and right. nothing nothing was going to happen there. Uh, obviously, we're still in a coronavirus lockdown. Um, there were no competitions going on. They actually suspended the Olympic qualification um, from wow. the end of March until December first. So there was nothing you could do to improve your chance of going to the games, other than kind of focusing on your training. But um, that's why I say that it feels real now because we're now like 170 days, seven months away from the games. We can feel it. It feels palpable. Like I can see it again. Whereas for a long time, when you don't have any competitions for over a year, um, not because you're not ready to compete. Like in the case of I've, I've had spans of time like that off with injury, but that's very different from there just not being an opportunity to compete because there are no competitions. Um, so it's mm -hmm. fantastic that th those are coming back now and I can start feeling feeling the um, the games in my body and, and, and kind of now ready to kind of prepare for them again. Very cool. And I just got to ask, like, what is the feeling? And I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but when you're in that first Olympics as you're representing your country and like the opening ceremonies like taking part in that you know it's it's something that like as kids we you know we dream of and we we look up to those people like what was that like i think from like you know an emotional standpoint but then also from like a, you know a realistic standpoint what was that like for you it's one of those moments where like you you appreciate it immediately but like the real true appreciation comes later. Like it's kind of like a delayed appreciation in the moment. You're just so focused on competing and like doing it right. with pride. And it feels, you know, one, one of my, uh, I don't know if you call it a tradition or if you call it a um, superstition, um, a superstition or a ritual, whatever it is. But the night before every competition, I lay my uniform out, on the on the floor um with everything so i've got my race singlet i've got my underpants over my tights i've got my socks lying on there i've got my running shoes lying on top of the socks you know i have my gatorade bottles i have my you know everything is, is laid out on the floor and it was su it's super special looking down at that uniform and and seeing the australian crest and knowing that my family are going to be in the stands when I put that on tomorrow and that my entire friendship group are traveling all around the world, but they're going to find a way to watch this race. Um, strangers that I have no idea um, what their names are will know my name um, tomorrow. So it's an enormous feeling of pride. Um, I, 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 and I, and I, again, I think it's something that you appreciate in the moment of like, wow, like I'm doing this, but it's only later do you do you realize that not many people get that opportunity. And even as an athlete, that opportunity is never guaranteed to happen again. So you, right. you do what you can to appreciate it. Um, but I think really the, the, the time to let it sink in will be after my career um, and just to continue to That's enjoy right. it and feel the pride now. But to um to like really look back on when I do hang up the, the shoes and say wow what an incredible thing and moment and and thing that 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 experience of my life gave me
Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's going to age very very well. <laughs> that's uh, a, I, I always that. like to say there, there's there's some memories that you have with friends where you just know like this is going to age well. Like that trip or that experience, yeah. like that's going to be real. That's going to age well. It's going to be very very fun to look back on. So certainly seems like one of those things that I can only imagine because you're you know you're wanting to take it in and you you are taking it as much as you can, but you're also focused on what you're there to do because it's a business trip, right? It's like it's you're not there trip. for vacation. Um, it's a business trip. <laughs> I remember a great story on that. Just before the London Olympics in 2012, I had the World Junior Championships in Barcelona. And the World Junior Championships are, is an under-20 competition. Um, so it actually took place in the Barcelona Olympic Stadium. And my family traveled across from Australia for that, for that competition. And about a week before I was set to compete, I sent my family an email. Went to my father and it CC'd in my mother and uh, Lucille and my sister Bianca. And it basically, the email said exactly what we were just talking about. This is the business trip for me. Like, I know that we're in Barcelona. We're in this incredibly romantic city, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not part of this trip. Um, right. you, know, you, you will see me from the stands. I will wave to you at the end of the race, um, but I will not be joining you for dinner. I will not be joining you for coffee. I'm not coming for a walk along the beach. I'm not going to Las Ramblas, you know, like, this is a business trip for me. And, you know, that's, yeah, it's also one of those uh, things that, that my parents always kind of in Australia, will call it banter. Um, you yeah. know, like that, that light laugh stuff, you know, is this business or is this pleasure? Or are we able to enjoy this as a family? But you know, the Olympic <laughs> yeah. games, the Olympic games is like this incredible concoction of everything because still my favorite moment of the Olympics um, was, just after the final so just after i'd finished running in my first olympic final finished eighth in the world and i finished drug testing and by the time i got back to the olympic village it was close to 1 a.m in the morning um and i just threw my bags down and went and met my family and a whole bunch of friends who had traveled to london to watch me at this bar at nearly two in the morning and almost no one could say anything it was like one of those times where like people were just smiling and crying and like you couldn't you, there was no words oh. that could vocalize the emotion of what you were feeling and that was my favorite part of the olympics and that was like a very familial thing but up until that point it's a business trip up until your point you finished um you know i had no communication like i was in my own zone that was you know i i i consume social media when i'm in the zone but i don't respond to anything um, my mm. sister actually logs into my social media accounts to kind of keep people updated. Um, but for me, we're a hundred percent business when we step in the village. Oh, I got chills just picturing that moment, like feeling that moment of like being able to like finally give a hug and, and to not only like show up to qualify for the Olympics and go be a part of that, but then to actually make the finals and to finish in top 10 in the world. Like that's just gotta be such an, a, you know, a, a rewarding feeling. Um, I, I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on, um, uh, the whole idea of like the journey and the destination and training and the race. What are your thoughts on that? I have the journey is where it all, it all lies. Um, but you know, I think as you pursue kind of like this infinite goal of like trying to be the best. Uh, regardless of what that best is in, uh, for me, it's as a 400 meter runner um, to run the, the the one lap of the track as fast 
and faster than anyone else in the world. Um, you know, the, the journeys, the, the day-to-day things that we do, right? It's the, it's the track sessions, it's the gym sessions, it's the uh, time with the physios, it's the time with the masseurs, it's the um, things I put in my body to fuel myself, it's how I recover. Um, you know, that's kind of the, the, the meat of the journey. And I've had that journey take place in a lot of different environments. Um, you know, I've had it take place uh, while living at home. I've had it take place while studying at Stanford. I've had it take place while studying at Duke. I've had it take place when I was training at the Olympic Institute um, that Australia has down in our in Canberra. And one of the, the insights that I can tell you about approaching the same journey from a whole different, in, uh, a number of different environments is the environment that you are taking on that challenge or, or taking part in that journey is so, so important uh, to both this, the end success, the end result, but also just your enjoyment and growth throughout it. Because if you're wanting to become the best at anything, it's not by definition easy. Um, you know, you're intentionally saying that you want to go above and beyond um, the average and in, in, in big ways. And that's daunting. Uh, you know, I think one of the famous quotes that, that Elon, um, you know, now the, the richest man in the world said, is like, if you're preparing to start a business or start a company and note when Elon says start a business, start a company, you know, he's not talking about, you know, doing a dog, you know, dog walking in his local park. You know, he's, t- he's talking about something big and large. He says, you've got to be prepared to eat glass. And why I love that so much is like, I'm such a fan of like visual metaphors. And like, I've just got this, I mean, everyone can just has this picture in their head of like having a glass in front of them and the idea of biting into that and chewing on it and knowing what it's going to do to your body, Um, like cut up your mouth, but being able to like go through that. And then you have to think about swallowing that glass. Like how off, how long, how much do you chew it? Like, like all of these things, what happens when it's in your stomach? That's the journey of pursuing anything great. Um, and to do it in an environment where you've got people around you um, that love you, that trust you, that believe in you, that support you, that care for you, that are willing their success on you. That's the way to enjoy the time and to get through, um, to get through the journey. Because if we return to the kind of that puzzle analogy um, that we were talking about earlier, most of the time when we're solving a puzzle, we're just staring at the blank pieces. Um, to do that by yourself is is lonely. Um, to do that with people around you who, like I was saying, care for you, who trust you, who are supporting you, who, who are willing for you, um, that's the experience that makes solving the puzzle worth it. And that's kind of how you push through those, those blockages which are bound to happen um, in any pursuit of a big goal. And I've seen that in myself, you know, I've spent so many years injured. I've spent so many uh, months rehabbing. Um, I've had great races. I've had bad races. I've made Olympic games. I've missed out on Olympic games and why I've been able to continue to do what I've been doing for the last 10 years, which is a long career for a guy who never grew up thinking he was going to be a professional athlete. Um, It's very, it's very much got to do with the journey. And then the prize, you know, that's the, I mean, that's, that's the prize, you know, that's the, the thing that, that's the reward for, for the fruits of your labor. Um, yeah, I, I'm shivering thinking about like the pride that I get in 
knowing that I got to the top eight in the world in something that I specialize in, that I was able to bring that to myself, but also my family, that the amazing opportunities that that's landed me, um, the confidence that that's given me in other pursuits of my life. Um, and yeah, I, you know, that's something that, that deeply fulfills me, deeply fulfills me. Incredible. And it's, it's not, I, I, I feel the same thing. And the idea that it, it's a combination of both. Like one of my, one of a good friend said, told me once when we were climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, he said, you know, I've climbed a lot of mountains. And for me, it's not about, it's not just about the destination or just about the journey. It's about epic journeys to incredible destinations. Like you need both. And it's a combination of the both of the life. And, and really when you're committing yourself to a craft like you have, like everybody does in their own way, those who dare to, you've got to love the process. You've got to love the journey. You've got to love the unfolding of it. And I've, I've certainly learned that <laughs> been forced to learn that lesson once or twice in my life as well. So professional athlete, 10 years, that's pretty incredible. You're also a professional in the business world as well. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. Like, and and I'm I'm curious to hear because not only are you professional in the business world, you're a professional writer as well. I will take the liberty of saying that because your writing is superb and you're a professional writer, you're a professional content creator by definition, because you get paid to do it. So you are a professional content creator and professional writer. And uh and you have and you make the time for the relationships like with your family and with friends as well. So <clears throat> I'd love to hear a little bit about those other pursuits that you feel very passionate about pouring yourself into and also how you maintain a seemingly balance across the board. Well, that's very kind. I'll, I'll first say thank you. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's probably helpful to, to, to get a little bit of a background. So I loved sports growing up. You know, there wasn't a sport that I wouldn't want to go and give myself a chance to, to try. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up at first wanting to be a professional rugby player. Um, and then when everyone else grew and I didn't grow, I changed that dream to become a professional soccer player um, <laughs> and played soccer for a long time. And then here I am as a, as a professional athlete. So um, I never, but, but even through all those dreams, like they really were dreams, you know, there was not something that I considered um to to be doing so i've always maintained and balanced that ambition in the world of sport with with other things ambitions in other parts of life as well and um mm. academics was always very important to me i actually grew up wanting to be a doctor uh my father is a surgeon and i went on an aid trip with him and his team his group of doctors to a small island called tonga when i was 14 and i got to scrub in on the operations um, wow. and I got to hold, you know, the, the wounds open while these doctors like reached over my shoulder and, you know, basically, you know, in, in Tonga, the, the big condition that we went there to solve was called club foot. And basically if, if everyone just like looks at their feet right now and like turns them inwards at the ankle. So they're like, uh, their their two big toes are pointing at each other, facing each other. Mm -hmm. That's called club foot. And, um, that's a big condition that they had in, in, in Tonga. And, and, and the solution to, to solve that uh, is to just basically take some hamstring. We have three hamstrings. Take some hamstring and lengthen the Achilles tendon, which is that a tendon that runs on the back of your heel. And all of a sudden, the, the feet come straight. And it, the whole procedure takes about 40 minutes. 
And within 40 minutes, you restore the ability for someone to walk wow. normally. Um, so that was a, that was a eye-opening experience for me. And I was like, you know, this is what I want to dedicate. This is what I want to do. Mm. So all throughout high school, um, I was, I was planning on doing medicine and in Australia, we can do undergraduate medicine. Um, so mm. straight out of high school, we can, we can go into, into the medical degree. Um, and then when did you, uh, yeah, when did you, when did you start running or when did you real, how did you, were you always like fast as a kid playing sports? And then how did you get into running? So I was always fast as a kid. Um, and it was like when I was 16 that I kind of went through my growth cert and I went from being like a fast kid to like a really fast kid. Um, and I started to, to train and, and maybe uh, at some point in this interview, we'll go, go through to my coach, uh, Fira Divoskina, because um, she's a mm-hmm. large part of, of, um, of my success and, and how I got there. But um, I'll continue back. So I'm in high school. I'm wanting to study medicine. I graduate high school in November 2011. And just before I graduated, I went to the career counselor at my high school um, to say, I want to, I want to study medicine, um, but there's this big competition next year called the Olympic games that I'm trying to perform at. Um, how am I going to balance both? How am I going to balance studying for the medical degree and going to the Olympics? And my counselor just said, you've got to go speak to the university. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, so <laughs> long and behold, I go, go speak to the university. Um, and I introduce myself and I explain what I'm trying to do. And the poor woman at the other side of my conversation, when hearing that I was trying to start undergraduate medicine and train for the Olympic games, looked at me like I was, she was looking at a ghost and she got very frantic. And she just said like, just not going to be able to do it. Like um, you have to start in January and you can't miss a semester because if, if the semesters only, you know, happen once a year and, you know, they, they work in two week cycles, they call it a block and B block. So like it became very clear that it was going to be impossible for me to combine my athletics um, and academics. So I remember going home um, from that conversation and telling my parents I was in a midlife crisis. <laughs> I was 17. Was this a, was this at Stanford, by the way? Were, was this? I haven't. I haven't. This I haven't is before. This is this is high no school. Way. This is high school. So this, <laughs> this is, this is the story game. of how I how I ended up at Stanford. Um, gotcha. And so this isn't all, all taking place in Australia. I'm glad you clarified that. And anyway, I think my mother was going through my school bag, and I think I'd left an apple or something in there, and she found all of these letters of interest from uh, American universities. And she said to me, like, what are these? And I said, oh, they're the most, they're, they're these, these annoying letters that I get. Because um, they, they, <laughs> they get sent to my high school because they don't have my, um, my home address. And every day I would come up to school and there'd just be letters littering my locker. And if there was a trash can next to me, I would literally take the letters and throw them in the trash can. Um, or on this instance, there obviously wasn't a trash can. I threw them in my school bag. And... Uh, which for many uh, teenage boys at a private school was a trash can. So (laughs) um, we're going through these letters and all of a sudden, like we start seeing some universities that we recognize. And as I said, like, it sounds silly for me to to speak about it this way in hindsight, but I really had blinkers on of what I wanted to do, medicine, uh, where I wanted to do it, University of New South Wales, um, that I didn't entertain. And there were so many things I had to do to get into that degree at that university um, that I wasn't entertaining any other option and it was only when that option was thrown out the window uh so to speak that i 
lifted my head and I started looking into these universities and I went, oh, snap, like, I know Harvard, I know Stanford, I know UCLA, I know the University of Florida. Um, and I started looking into these programs and then lo and behold, I discovered the NCAA, you know, I'm down here in Australia, population 25 million. And I find out about the NCAA where there's a term, you might know it, Josh, it's called student athlete. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, this whole system is built around the ability to combine academics and athletics. I said, this is phenomenal. This is fantastic. This is what I've got to do. So I signed up for my next ACT exams, um, took those actually the next day um, <laughs> and, and yeah, started to, to apply to schools, um, was, was, was intending to do a big recruiting trip to, to, to pick the school that I wanted to go to, got injured at the end of 2011 and didn't want to take time off my rehab. Um, so my father was actually giving a talk in LA. So he went to go visit UCLA on my behalf. And then he said, hey, I'm in California. I'll pop up to see Stanford. He popped up to see Stanford and he came back to Australia and he said, Steve, if you get into Stanford, he's like, that made me want to go back to study. Like that place has <laughs> the magic about it. Um, I, I got accepted into the university. I signed uh, without ever st stepping foot on campus. And I had four incredible years at, at, at Stanford where um, over those years, my love and intention to go into medicine morphed into this um, passion for entrepreneurship and business. So, so when I got back to Australia, um, after finishing at Stanford, I went to go do a master's in management at Duke, came back to Australia and knew that I wanted to get into the world of business. And I also knew that I wanted to combine my athletics and academics because that's what I'd done all through college. Um, yeah. and that was actually the solution that worked for me. When I took a, my, my, uh, senior year off Stanford to move back to Australia to train for the Rio Olympic Games in 2016. All I was doing is eating, sleeping, training, and repeating. And it wasn't the environment of success for me. Um, you know, my training is brutal. Um, you know, I, 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 I run to the point of sickness multiple times a week. Um, you know, my, my body is tired. It's sore. Um, I crave an outlet. Um, mm -hmm. Quick, and, quick pause, quick pause. You, I, I saw on your Instagram story the other day, like hitting a workout and then blowing <laughs> chunks after, which was great. I love it. It gave me, it gave me a nice little bump to like bump up my workout a bit, you know, get to that, to get to that level. You said multiple times a week, you will run till you puke. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll keep on this quick aside, but it, it's quite an incredible feeling when you line up before your last run at a workout and you you hope this is the feeling on the last run and you don't have more than one to go, uh, knowing that you're probably going to be puking at the end of it. Um, yeah. like that is, that is like a mental battle. Um, that's quite unlike any other that I've, that I've had to face. Um, but yeah, so, so kind of back to that 2016 campaign where mm -hmm. I missed out on the Rio Olympics and I missed out on four hundredths of, of one second. Um, which is an amount of time that I can't comprehend. I don't think anyone can really comprehend. It's not an amount of time that you can picture. Um, it's really right to me. It's like the sound of, it's like, it's like the time that eclipses when you clap your hands and for that sound to like reach your hands to your ears. Like it's, it's just this insane wow. amount of time. And, but when I, when I failed on that, that, that goal of, of, of first getting to the Olympics, um, you know, when, when you fail on something, you have the ability to learn. Um, because when you succeed, you celebrate. 
you, you know, you, when you succeed, you celebrate. When you when when things don't work out as you plan, you you're, you're forced to look at why. And in that post analysis, in that post mortem, I call it because I felt like I was dying, or the goal at least felt like it was dying. I realized that while being at the Australian Olympic Institute um, to train was the best answer to the question of where is the best place for me to train. It wasn't the answer to the question of where am I at my best. And, you know, part of that was when I'm at my best, I'm busy, I'm intellectually stimulated um, and all these other factors that, that, that kind of bubbled through that, through that process of postmortem. And one of those was, was knowing that I wanted to stay intellectually curious and I needed to continue to flex that muscle. So when I was preparing for my Tokyo uh, Olympic campaign, I knew that I wanted to work. And so when I moved back from America to Australia, I, um, I interviewed across a bunch of different fields. I went to, from commercial banking to investment banking, to real estate management, to infrastructure management, to airports, to airlines, to startups, to uh, technology companies, um, to private equity funds, everything you can imagine. I went and chatted with the people involved in those industries. And for me, I was looking at both a role that I was going to be interested in, um, a role that I thought that I could grow into uh, and evolve with, but at the same time, also to do it with a team and in a company that was benevolent and supportive of my ambitions on the athletics track. And, um, and, and, and that's where Uber steps into this story. So I've been at Uber for two and a half years now. I remember sitting down with the, um, the head of Uber at the time in Sydney for my final interview. She was also um, the, the contact that I would been put in touch with when I was exploring um, these opportunities mm -hmm. with these different industries. And her name's Beck Neist. And I remember telling Beck, I, was, I said, Beck, we spoke about this months before you know before i had my first interview i didn't even know what role i would be thinking of at the time it was more just a introduction to uber and the opportunities available at the company i said for me my athletics i need to prioritize on a on a tuesday and a thursday i'm out of the office at two o'clock out of the office um on a monday and a wednesday and a friday there's going to be a two-hour chunk in the day where i'm out of the office um because on those mondays and wednesdays and fridays I've got to do two sessions during those days and I, and one of them needs to come in the hours of nine to five. Um, you know, you, you can train before and after work, but that wasn't me prioritizing my athletics. Um, that wasn't me mm. giving myself the best shot at the Olympics and, and knowing what I needed to my goals. I knew that I could train either before or after work, but I also had to get another session in during the work hours for two, for around two hours. Um, and then on a Tuesday and a Thursday, those other days I have my squad uh, running training um, which I wasn't going to miss. So that was like under no circumstances on a Tuesday and a Thursday, you're going to see me in the office up two o'clock. And why this is significant for me to say is because I had interviewed across a bunch of companies. I'd had a bunch of job offers. And whenever I took these um, requests to set, HR- Set these boundaries, yeah. Set these boundaries, HR wouldn't build them into the employment contract. And at the time I was really upset. I was like, how? Like, I've gone through all the interviews. They have right. determined me the winner of the job. And it's now you telling me that, that, that no, um, we can't legally build this into your contract. Um, and I said this again to Beck, fully expecting her to say the same thing as, and I'm, I'm, I won't, I'm talking big companies, like big companies that you all recognize saying, we'd love you, Steve, come back to us after the Olympics. We can't build these into the employment contract. Wow. Um, 
And Beck just saying to me, Steve, like you've told me this. And I said, I know, but I want to make sure you're hearing me. And she goes, Steve, I trust you. If you think you can do it, I believe that you can do it. Um, wow. It's not, and that was so empowering from a leader of an organization. And it really does speak volumes to the culture at Uber and certainly the culture I've experienced throughout my time there. And also, Josh, it makes you more like you give me slack, brother, I'm giving it back to you. You know, like there's that, that principle of reciprocity is real. Um, so I am tremendously proud of the work that I've done for Uber over the last two and a half years. I'm loving my time and, and hopefully I'm creating as much value for the company as, as, as what I hope to. Um, and it's also, it's, it's been a really great thing for my athletics as well. It gives me, it gives right. me leverage, you know, track and field is not a money sport. <laughs> I, I'm not buying, um, mansions down in LA, like my, uh, my fellow teammates at, at Stanford who played you know, uh, college football and, and went on to the NFL. I'm not signing million dollar contracts. For me, um, working at Uber gives me a lot of leverage to empower my athletics because it gives me an opportunity to flex my intellectual curiosity. It gives me a paycheck so I can go and, you know, see the, the massage therapists and the physios and the doctors and nutritionists and eat the right foods that I need to, to get the best out of my performance. And it also gives me something to plan my routine around. Mm. Um, so I'm... I'm very bullish uh, to use the term on combining uh, professional sports with work uh, when you can find the environment and employer that, that, that is benevolent to, to the goals that you're, you're pursuing. Yeah, totally. It was like, um, you, you know, you were a student dash athlete, you were a student athlete, and now you're a professional dash athlete, like you're a professional athlete, but That's you're it. a professional slash athlete, right? <laughs> That's and, it. and you've uh, and you've seen the effect in this training in this in this training for for London. You've seen the effect of having that other output to pour your energy into. Totally, uh, and, and you know we talked you talked we talked a little bit earlier about the journey and the destination. You know, like in that journey phase, that phase when you're building the puzzle where you're just looking at the board, it's great to have um, to, to have work and to have other things in your life that are important to you um to to kind of help you through that phase because that's that's the, the the phase that you spend the most time in and it's also the most brutal um right as you as you get closer to the championships um as you start seeing the end of the puzzle and you start getting that a rush uh of adrenaline of being able to put the final pieces and knowing where they go that's when i uh, that's when i'll take time off work and you know i'll as long as i communicate that which of course i will um up front and with clarity and saying you know from these this week to this date to this date, these four weeks, I'm off work. These six weeks, I'm off work. These like three months, I'm off work, whatever it's going to be. Um, that's, that's okay. You know, that works. Mm. Uh, people can plan around that. Yeah. Very cool. And I'm sure it makes a big difference too, when you think about retiring from your professional career in, in running and transitioning to other things. Cause you know, I've, I saw that documentary, the weight, weight of gold, I think it was. And, and you, you hear a lot about pro athletes, especially Olympians that when they retire and they've, it's been their sole focus for their entire life. Like that can lead to some potential issues. Most athletes retire poorly. And when I say most, I should reframe that. I would say 90% of athletes retire poorly. And what I mean by that is retiring from sport isn't done in the same way as we retire from our professional lives. Think about retirement from professional lives. You're probably like 
you know, 60, 65, 70, whatever you are age-wise, you're, you're working backwards from that date. You're looking at things like, am I financially secure enough to retire? Do I have things to do when I retire? Do I have hobbies? You know, do, where, where do I want to retire? You know, place of, place of uh, living. Um, who am I retiring with? You know, my family and friends, you know, you know what's happening? Um, and, and it's a process towards retirement uh, when you do it professionally. It's something that you work towards sometimes for a very long time and something you think about a lot. That isn't true of the athletic world. In the athletic world, retirement comes often when you just simply aren't good enough anymore. You, you get dropped from a team overnight. Um, you might have an injury, an acute injury that forces you into retirement. Um, or like an event, like an Olympic games happens and, and, you know, there, there's nothing for you for the next four years. Like, you, you know, you make the decision to retirement, but it, it's something that you can't also openly have a conversation about a lot of the time, because when you express your desire to, to retire, people like write you off, um, mm. you know, res- resources that you deserve get given to, to somebody else because there's this Interesting. Like, thought, there's this thought that if someone's thinking about retiring, they're thinking about finishing and we should rather focus on the people who aren't looking to retire which has a lot of sense to but i think what it does is it creates a bad um it does it doesn't it doesn't offer uh, a successful route or journey to retire to stopping to stopping something that you've been doing for you know probably since you were a kid um it doesn't stop you know it doesn't give you an access to a thing of you know, often that's all, you know, um, you know, often, uh, you were the man, uh, or you were the woman in whatever you did. And that gives you a tremendous amount of confidence. And now you don't have that. And like, how does that affect you? And how does it affect your self identity? Because often when you retire, like you'll always be thought of as the athlete, um, from the outside world. But if you haven't got it going, uh, on in your everyday life from an internal standpoint, there's a clash between how the outside world sees you and how you see yourself internally. So, mm-hmm. you know, all is that to say a lot of athletes retire poorly. Um, me being very intentional about my retirement, um, giving myself what I call leverage to make the decision to retire when that feels right for me um, mm. is, is what I hope is going to be, um, you know, kind of put me in that 10% of people of athletes who retire well and make a smooth transition. Uh, when I do hang up the running shoes and, and, you know, put on the suit full time, uh, metaphorically, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll have to see how it goes. Definitely metaphorically putting on the suit full time. (laughs) That's cool though. Especially uh, working in technology. I, I was going to say, especially working in startups and, and Uber. Um, so when, in, I, I'm curious to know when, when in your life did you, was the seed planted for yourself that you were like, I'm going to be the best at this. Cause I know you were playing a lot of things when you were younger. And so yeah. when did you get into running? And then when did you decide through that part? Did it happen early where you were like, Oh, I want to be the best in the world at this. And what was the mindset around that? It's an awesome question. It's one I actually haven't thought of, but I, I have a very clear answer. So as I said, I just loved sports growing up, um, all sports. And, you know, when I, when I became, uh, when, when, it, when it was evident that I was better than average at running and I started to train seriously for it and, and my progression was very steep. Um, as I said, you know, I was still in high school when I represented Australia for the first time at the world championships. And right. um, so 
I get to, I, it, it was really when I got to the, these big events. So um, in 2010, I was 16 years old. I made a world junior team, my first uh, world team at a junior level, uh, which was an under 20 event. I was 16 at the time. And I get there and I could see the best in the world for my age. I could see them and I could see where they were and where I was. And that was tremendously inspiring and, 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 and really lit a fire uh, in me to be like, ah, the next time I'm at these world championships in two years time, I want to be on the podium. I want to be there. Um, so when I returned to Barcelona, um, I, I, I was, I was there. I won a bronze medal there at the world junior championships. And then the other side of it comes from, from this coach of mine that I, that I had, uh, her name was Fira Divoskina. She was a Ukrainian refugee who, who moved to Australia, um, at the end of the Soviet union. And, she did. She, 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 to say she spoke English would be lying. Um, she spoke like <laughs> she spoke like a hybrid of Russian and English, um, and it took me months to understand what she was saying. But she was she was that person who believed in me. Um, you know, when when I was when I was going into the London Olympics in two thousand twelve, I think I was ranked thirty two um, going into the games. So think about the Olympic games. The best. Only the very best athletes in the entire world get to the Olympic Games. And then think about what, what happens when they get there. So in the 400, you take the 48 best 400-meter runners in the world. And after the first round, you throw half of them away. You cut half the field after the first round. Only 24 athletes make it to the semifinals. So on paper, I should never have progressed to the semifinals. I was ranked 32. I needed to be top 24. I should never have progressed. I won my heat. I won my prelim round at the Olympic Games and progressed to the semifinals. And then we get even more ruthless. We say, all right, we've thrown out half of the best athletes in the world in the first day, but today we're only taking 30% of the field through the final. We're going from 24 guys down to eight guys. Um, you know, go do your things. You know, battle it out for the eight. And, and I went into the Olympics with the goal of, of, of finishing in the top eight. Uh, in the world. And that really came from Fira. Um, we were probably the only two people on the planet who believed that I could do it. <laughs> and I don't think I would have believed that I could do it if it wasn't for her belief uh, in me. So, and then again, I had that feeling when I made, when I did that, um, when I could literally, I'm sitting in the room before the race with the seven other guys on the planet who are, who are going to compete with me to be the best. Um that was when I, uh, you know, had this feeling of like, I want to be the best. I want to chase um, the highest goals. And what I love about that moment is it, for me, it happened in athletics and it happened at the, in, in, the, in the Olympics. But I have just brought that mentality to, to everything that I do. Um, and, you know, I think one of the hardest things that I still struggle with is saying no to things and like turning opportunities down. But when you are so convict, you, you when you have such a strong conviction in that the things that you are going to do, you want to be the best in the world with, that actually becomes a lot easier um, because it prioritizes by nature what you want to dedicate your time and energy to if you have the goal of being the best at it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of kind of the story. And you know what I I always I really enjoy teaching. Um, or, or, you know, like, um, yeah, I, I guess teaching is the right word. But when I, when I talk to people, and I talk to young kids, um, you know, I just tell them like, 
you have to, you know, when you're a kid, you have to do a lot of things, like as many different things as you can. Um, and then through doing all those things, you're going to find what you're good at and what you enjoy doing and what you're passionate about. And once you find those things, that's not going to be your entire life. Like your whole passion through that is not going to be your entire life. I love um, the idea that if you, if you like look at Y Combinator and like you look at some of the founders of that and, and uh, Paul Graham um, is, is, is someone I follow on Twitter and, and he, he, his tweets are hilarious because he often tweets about his kids. But, you know, the classic question of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. The reality is a lot of the answers to that question didn't exist at the time that they were asked. Like mm. you couldn't grow up and say, hey, I want to work um, on a smartphone uh, because, you know, 15 years ago that didn't exist or like, Hey, like I want to, you know, send, um, you know, commercial, um, satellites into space, you know, so I want to be an Instagram well, influencer that by I the way, they did, ins- they did a study and that was the number one when they asked kids, I think age 14 to uh, 22, I'll have to double check on the age range. What do you want to be when you grow up? Instagram influencer slash vlogger was number one. There we go. See like that, yeah. th- those, those markets, those opportunities, those ideas didn't exist, you know, all that long ago. So for me as a kid or anyone growing up and a kid, you you mean in your twenties, you're still a kid, um, do as much as you can because you will find something that you're passionate about, that you're good at, um, and that you're curious about. And then once you find that, that's when you like organically get the desire to become very good, very, very good. And then it's up to you on how far you take that. Um, but that um, that passion and that skill set and that ethos that you take into that pursuit jumps across everything that you do in your life and, and everything that you will do in your life. Um, so I'm very encouraging of people to, especially when you're young, when you can take risks um, at, a, at a lot easier uh, cost than when, than when you're older, to, to go out there and and do things and it it sounds cliche um but i think the reason it sounds cliche is because you hear it from every single person who's ever done something great is that that's what they've done um and i'm tremendous advocate for for doing that and and when i eventually hang up the shoes josh and 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 stop running like you, you bet i'll be trying to become the best in in whatever that next step is for sure i love that becoming the best steve that you can be Right. That's that's the pursuit of it. And that and that then seeps into whatever else you're doing is just an expression of you being the best version of yourself. And if it happens to be running the way you're expressing it, great. If it happens to be crushing a project at Uber, great. If it happens to be writing, whatever it might be, you're going to be the best. Totally. Um, I'm going to give my best to whatever that is. And, you know, kind of like the Olympics, like if everyone gives their best, you know, it's going to it's going to it's going to come out. You know, you're going to find out where you're ranked. But, you know. If you're if you're ranked in, in in the top percentage of the world at whatever you do, which I believe that everyone is capable of achieving um, in the fields that they give their time and energy to, like you're gonna you're gonna experience you know immense happiness and success in the in that success. Mm-hmm, totally, I think it's it's such powerful advice too. There's a lot of people, a, a lot of young professionals that uh, I'm sure you can see this as well, but and a lot of people, a lot of friends, a lot of a lot of clients that I've worked with as well that, that just kind of feel this general stagnation because 
all they do is work, right? It's like work is the only thing and they don't even really enjoy it. It doesn't hit the cross section of some, maybe, maybe they're good at it, but they don't enjoy it. They're not, they don't have the passion by it. And it's just like the kind of, like you were saying, like wake up, train, eat, sleep, repeat. People are in that loop, wake up, check the phone, go to work, plug in. Now you don't even have to get out of bed or your pajamas and then, you know, go to sleep, eat, maybe numb ourselves with some Netflix or, or booze or whatever it is. And, and that kind of, that kind of loop. And, and it's something that I see there's a massive lack of people like have hobbies. Like I have heard so many times, like I need to get a hobby. It's like, yes, go get a hobby, go try something new, go learn a new language, go, go learn how to do the salsa, like go do like those different things. Cause that's what brings the color into your life. Totally. And, and that's, you, 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 you'll bring that energy and that presence to every other thing. Um, you know, I like to, to, to me, you know, hiring for people at Uber, like the, the question that I ask, you know, the, the candidates is like, what are you passionate about? Like, I mm -hmm. want to see you talk about something where your eye sparkles, um, right. that you could talk all day. Like, that's what I want to see because I, I do totally agree with you. If you don't have an, that hobby, that's something that you enjoy, no matter how niche it is. Um, I do think you're, you're a victim to, you know, sleepwalking through life, like you were saying, and. I know that mm. I'm not at my best when I'm doing that. Um, so if I can't imagine how anyone is. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's why I think everyone should, should both have that thing that they're passionate about. But then I go one step further and say like, have something where you're challenging yourself to become the best version of you at that thing. Um, because it, it changes the way you think about that task. You know, if you tell yourself like, Oh, I want to be uh, a runner. Like, I just want to be the best runner I can. Um, you know, that's kind of like high level. But then you start getting specific. You'd be like, I want to be the best 5K runner that I can be. And then I, then I can say to myself, okay, for me to be the best 5K runner that I can be, what do I, what does success look like there? Um, you know, is it my training? Is it my eating? Uh, is it my coaching? Is it my environment? Um, is it my education? Like, that's when you start breaking the problem down. And I think that's where the magic is. Um, and mm. that's where the inter, that's where the interdisciplinary cross-pollination of skills is. It's not in so much whatever goal it is. It's how do you approach that goal that can be applied to everything that you do. And when you're trying to become the best at something, it forces you to do things that you don't enjoy. Like, hey, I'd much rather be at the bar um, with my buddies at 11 o'clock, um, you know, on a Thursday night, then I was when I left my mates at nine 30 last night, cause I need to get home and, you know, go to bed cause I got a big day tomorrow. Um, that's not a good decision, but I think people are, are you know, in, in the, in the, um, in the cloud of living your best life and eating the dessert every day, you're going to end up with diabetes. Like, so, you know, like being very intentional about where you, you know, how you approach like being your best, not living your best life, like being your best and letting everything that happens become your life around that um, is a much more healthy and sustainable way to just get the best out of yourself and the enjoyment out of the things that you do. Um, yeah, I haven't met someone who said that they'd rather be bad at something than good at something. I don't know. Maybe. Right. <laughs> 
So, so you're telling me that you'd rather be at the bar with your mates than puking, uh, pushing yourself to the point of puking every every day, <laughs> multiple times I'm, a week. I'm telling, I'm telling you because I'm trying to be the best. I'm making the decision to leave. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Totally. And that's that's totally. really, really, really powerful, man. Um, listen, we're already approaching an hour here, and I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Um, what? What what I think we need to do is we need to get back on the podcast now that we got the backstory, which I think is really amazingly insightful, very valuable, very helpful. And this was what needed to happen. We got to get back on the podcast and have a conversation on some of these other topics, being a content creator and consumer. Some of I I, I have so many questions around routine and ritual, um, more of the high performing mindset, specifically around the running as well. Like the 400 meter is like 400 meters is a is a is a, is a brutal is a brutal task. So um, so I think that I think that that's uh, that's something that we'll do if you're open to it, my friend. Let's do it. Um, you know, I, I've said to you, this to you in private before, Josh, but I'd love the opportunity to, to say it to you in public. Um, I'm such a fan of what you're doing, man. Um, you know, you are approaching find the others um, in the same way that I approach uh, trying to become the best 400 meter runner in the world. Um, from the calls that we have to, to think about how we're going to go about this chat to the equipment that you use um, and, and, you are the example that I was talking about where I was saying that you do a lot of things like you've done a lot of things, man. You've been a lot of places um, and you've honed in on this skill set of yours, which is to link and tie a conversation and steer a conversation and create flow in a conversation. Um, it, it, it's incredibly impressive. I've loved every episode that you've done, um, you know, the twice a week. Uh, little notification on my Spotify to listen to find the others is one that I cherish and look at with excitement. Um, just sending a lot of energy to you and, and the whole uh, others community. And we'll definitely uh, continue to jam on all those things at another time. But I tremendously appreciate the opportunity to do so with you as an initial, as an initial today. And, um, and yeah, man, looking forward to, uh, to our continued chats in the future. I love it, bro. Much love. Thank you for those words. Uh, real recognized, real, as a friend says. I love that. Um, <laughs> and I uh, definitely appreciate it. And yeah, this is what it's about. This is the others is dedicating yourself towards something great, daring to live deeply, accepting the challenges, choosing the challenges that inspire you. If you don't choose the challenges that inspire you, life is going to choose the challenges for you. So choosing the challenges that inspire you and, and, and being dedicating yourself to something greater than yourself. So I love it, man. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. And, uh, until next time. Thank you, Steve. Until next time. Catch you, mate. Bye.